completely unbalanced. Come on now, Brian. That's pretty awful. Oh my god. <laughs> He's unbalanced. This guy is a lunatic. These men lived in a much different time. God, we got some kooky people back in this time. It's not obvious that we are professionals. You're not paying attention. We know what we're doing. <laughs> but I'm serious. Can we start already? All right. Welcome to Unbalanced Views of History, a mostly American history podcast. During each episode, I, Brian Bradyhoff, will read an amazing story to my friend, Mike Ajarinas, who is completely ignorant. Totally ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely ignorant. So, Mike, uh, what's your sunshine this week, buddy? Uh, sunshine this week. Well, I have a uh, I have a little bit of sunshine in the form of a big announcement. Okay. That after there's been some some recent news which has really solidified solidified this decision for me, but I am going to officially pull my support from the 2024 nominee Donald Trump. <laughs> And officially shift said support to the great man of your state, Governor DeSantis. And there's been a couple key reasons why I'm going to do this. I'm going to have to edit all of this, obviously. He is young. And um, in a nutshell, he doesn't come with all the baggage that Trump comes with. Yet he still stands up for a lot of the same principles. A couple things happened very recently that really make me think there's been a real shift in the Republican party. So, okay. You want to hear my sunshine then? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Did I cut you off? Go ahead. You son of a <laughs> bitch. Um, and uh, a couple things, uh, a couple of these latest, uh, latest elections have showed me that Trump's power is kind of swaying. He can crush people still, but he can no longer help them win elections. DeSantis has, I think, clearly taken the mantle and has started to run with it. And uh, all of the polls now have, I think, him leading anyway. So I don't think we'll see a, a Trump 2024, which is probably good news to to to, to you. I don't care. Uh, tr- Trump at least had the advantage of being um, uh, objectively funny on Twitter. So there, what's uh, good in your world there? They're a big guy. You know, we uh, f- family went down to, uh, to Disney World a little bit and uh, it was really cool. Daughter met like made like a, a little friend down there. And uh, I have to say it was like it was like a special bond that she and this other little girl had. That was uh, it was just something special. She made, you know, kids make friends like fast, but it was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I hear you. I, I heard the story, but just to fill the ki- just to fill everyone in, go through this story because I have a theory. So please tell tell everyone what happened. Uh, it's okay. So just it it was just um we're we're down in Disney World. We're we're at this at the resort, and Ella makes a little friend in the pool, and they're playing, having a good time. And uh, I I'm up. I'm talking to this guy. Um, I'm having a having a cocktail at the bar, and. Um, talking to this guy and uh you know whatever we're, we're just having a good old time and I, I walked away went around the corner for a minute i was talking to this woman over there and 
whatever, chit chat with her for a minute. She's real nice. And then Carla walked up and she's talking to the, she's like, oh, I met her earlier. It's like, okay, cool. And uh, then the guy comes over and uh, the guy I was talking to over, over at the bar walks over and it's like, oh, that's, that's her. It's this woman's husband. So, so they're, they're, they're a couple, we're a couple. We've all been talking to each other, have no idea. And then somehow after talking for a minute or two, one of them says, well, I guess we better go talk, check on our daughter. And it's like, oh my gosh, so you're, you know, that's, and that's the little friend Ella's made so, <laughs> who had been hanging out with like the grandmom. So, you, you know, so like there was no, uh, there was no reason to connect these people to <laughs> the little girl, you know what I mean? To the little girl. So it was just one of those things. So we all kind of like independently bond, like we all kind of independently met and chit chatted mm-hmm. a little bit while our daughters were just like having a good old time playing with the grandma who was, you know, uh, being the, the seahorse for mm-hmm. the two of them. So, right now. My theory to this whole thing, because I immediately think if I was in your shoes, I'd be thinking this is a setup immediately as soon as all this was coming into place. <laughs> so I think these are are, are Disney henchmen that, that I could see them. I could see them behind like the yeah, curtain and sure. they're all going, OK, I sure. got the dad. You get the kid. Sure. You get the mom. Are you ready? Go. <laughs> and they clap their hands together and they all break and they go out. And, and they do yeah. their thing. So I'm just saying, just be careful. Look them up on social media. Make sure they're all real people. And make sure, they, make sure they're not like Disney employees. To, to what end is the question? Like, to just, what end? I mean, what is the goal? What is Disney's goal? They already, they get enough of our money already. What, what, is, their, what is their end game here? They, well, I don't know. Maybe I, mean, I, don't I, have know a se- I have a seven-year-old, Mike. They get a lot of my money, whether I want to <laughs> give it to them or not. Like, what, what is their end game? I, I Maybe that is the more. end game. I've given the, I, we, we give them all we can. <laughs> I think their end game is they want your kid. Yeah, they maybe. see that seven-year-old. They say, we want that seven-year-old. Maybe. All right, let's go get them. Let's start the, start the process. Start sure. the process right makes, now. Makes, makes sense. <laughs> she's she's going to be, uh, she's going to disappear and I'm going to find her in a Minnie Mouse costume. And, <laughs> the evil empire. It's the evil empire. There, there is also that. So yeah, so that's my sunshine. It was really nice, you know, feeling like Ella really made a, a special friend. You know, like they were crying and everything when they when they had to leave. That's and, awesome. Yeah, it was really. It was. Have they Facebooked? Have they? They will. They're still there. They're still on vacation. So um, there, there's we, we have, there's a yeah, plan in right. place. Sweet. You know, I think Ella's kind of excited about sending her letters in the hopes that she'll get letters in return. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I hope she does too. Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna be writing her letters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, so, with that all said, Mike, Michael, Brian, Mikey, <laughs> Bri, Bri. <laughs> this week, our story takes place in what uh, we're gonna call the Atlantic world. Ooh. The world which is kind of that borders the Atlantic. So we're going to sort of use the Atlantic Ocean as our kind of centerpiece for, for where this story takes place, right? It's a story that will take us from the coast of West Africa mm-hmm. um, to the Caribbean. Ooh, my favorite. To Virginia. Well, listen, I've always wanted to go to Africa. So West Africa, sure. I mean, West Africa is a pretty vague term. It's an enormous, it's an enormous continent. It's an enormous continent. It's an enormous continent. It is. And um, like, and the maps don't do it justice. They make it look much smaller than it is. Um, and in researching before our episode, I know that its largest river is the Nile. Yes, river. of course. Yes. Okay. That's, 
Thank you. Just want to drop some knowledge. Just want to drop. Right, some that knowledge. would be that would be sort of the northeast, uh, northeast Africa in Egypt. We are going to be down on the west coast. Uh, sure. Anyway, sure. okay. So our t- story is going to take us from the west coast of Africa to the Caribbean, to Virginia, then to Great Britain, really to England, uh, and then back to Africa, sort of eventually. We're even going to make a quick stop in the uh, the Cap Verde Islands. So this is an extraordinary story that I'm, about, I'm going to tell you about the odyssey of two young men. But it is also an extremely unusual story that does not reflect typical experiences. So keep that in mind through this story, that this is, an, this is a story about two extraordinary gentlemen. Is that like what people say about us? Absolutely. Okay. And, and in, in the same way, as two guys from Baltimore, you cannot deduce uh, what a common Baltimore experience is from looking at our lives. Uh, the elite status and the unique st- uh, skills of our protagonists will afford them opportunities that would have been unthinkable for most people who were in similar circumstances, okay? We are going to talk about the enslavement of African people, the British role in the transatlantic slave trade. We're going to talk a little bit about slavery in the Americas. Again, this is not going to be a religion podcast, but religion will again play an important role in our story as uh, Quakers and Methodists and other evangelicals were at the forefront of the abolition movement, right? So they are going to be relevant here because of, you know, again, because we're dealing with... um, the abolition. It's not really because of their theology, but because of their politics. It's a story about slave traders, slave traders from both Europe and Africa. And to me, maybe the most significant, most significantly, it's a story about class, specifically the kind of class privilege that is afforded to social elites. So I'm going to tell you the story about little Ephraim and Ancona Robin, Robin John. Little F and Annie Rob. There you go. They're the brother and the nephew of a man named Grandy King George, Robin John, who is the powerful epic king in the ta- in the, the region of Old Calabar. Where the hell is Old Calabar? On the coast of West Africa. West Africa. Okay. In the the cross, like in the Cross River Delta near the Niger, like in near the Niger gotcha, River, gotcha, River gotcha. Delta. Little F, okay. he's the uncle. Annie Rob is the nephew. Correct. Little Ephraim is the uh, the brother of Grandy King George. Now, Grandy King George is obviously not his birth name. It's a title that he's to- chosen for himself. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Now, now, Grandy King George, is he still alive at this time? Yes, yes. And he's around? Okay, cool. So he's in the picture. He's the, he, is, he is a very powerful uh, king. He's an epic king. We'll get to what the epics are uh, of Old Calabar. In the late 18th century, these two men who were called princes by the English, who because they were you know, part of the kind of royal family. Uh, They went from slave traders to enslaved men. They journeyed more than 20,000 miles in a long quest to escape their bondage and return home to their lives of privilege, right? So this is the story of the Robin Johns. I like it. And this is, I think this is based off of a conversation that me and you had in the past. I think I asked you a lot about this. Yep. Because it's very fascinating to me. So I think this is going to be a good one. I, I'm not going to lie. This is I, I, this is at least to a degree inspired by that by by those conversations uh, that I decided to do this particular story. But I want you to understand. You know, we got to uh, sort of deal with this as a uh, a nuanced topic. All right. Okay. So with that in mind, I'm going to provide um, a little bit of superficial but necessary background information, and hopefully, and hopefully, this will create a better rounded understanding of slavery as as it was practiced in Sub-Saharan Africa, both before. 
and after European arrival in the region. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds with this. This is something we could literally do a whole episode, like a multi, multi, multi-part episode on, but uh, just enough to give sort of an overview. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So please understand though, because we're going to just be talking about this one small region. Other regions, uh, they obviously had other different material, social, cultural, political considerations that would have influenced the specific ways and the specific reasons that they participated either or did not participate to a greater or lesser degree in slavery and the slave trade. Okay. So this is a very specific, you know, regional specific story. All right. Sure. Then uh, from the time that people organized into societies, some form of forced labor existed. The word slave comes specifically from the Byzantine Greek word sklavos, which meant a Slavic person. So the term slave actually really evolved from the predominant use of Slavs as the captive laborers that filled the slave markets of uh, not only Europe, but also Asia and Africa. So slavery as an institution predates even the word slave, because of course the Byzantine Greeks are much later. The institution predates the word slave and the way slavery was practiced uh, differed based on time, place, and circumstance all over the world, right? Okay. One reason that there is so much emphasis on slavery as practiced in like the Anglo-Americas, right? The English-speaking Americas and the United States is at least partly because this is where we live. So that's what we have access to. We have access to our own history more than anybody else's, right? So I don't know how much slavery is discussed in other places because I don't have access to that material in the languages spoken there. But also slavery is uh, focused on here is because the way that it was practiced in the English-speaking Americas was fundamentally different than the way it was practiced elsewhere. Lots of places had slavery. Mm-hmm. Every place that had it operated somehow, some you know, in, in their own unique ways. That said, the way that it was practiced in the Americas was kind of explicitly genocidal. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, that's a term that didn't exist uh, during the era of kind of uh, of African slavery, but. Uh, it's an apt description of the institutional practice that took place kind of in the Americas and the United States, right? Right. Genocide is commonly kind of understood as an explicit attempt to eliminate a specific group of people to, to kill them or eliminate them. But genocide is also defined, according to the Armenian Genocide Museum, as, quote, acts and measures undertaken to destroy nations or ethnic groups' culture through spiritual national and cultural destruction. So this is unquestionably a core component of what slavery was like in the Anglo-American colonies and the United States. But this was not generally consistent with the way that slavery was practiced in West Africa. Most reliable estimates suggest that more than half of the entirety of the slave trade took place in the 18th century, and that nine out of every 10 people abducted from Africa sailed off in British Portuguese or French ships. All right. So the overwhelming majority. Now, hold on. So let me stop you there. So the, the, the slave trade was, you said it was British, French, and Portuguese, Portuguese. Those were the countries that were coming through Africa and buying and trading slaves that were for the most part. Yeah. Primarily they were the most prominent. Now, where were they getting the slaves from? We had this discussion before, and you were saying that these were probably prisoners of conflict. Sure. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. So, okay, again, we're going to get into that. Okay, good, good, good. As slavery is practiced in Africa in, in, in different ways, in different places, and for different reasons. Um, who were the people? You said it was the French. I'm sorry, go over this again. It was the French. English, French, and Portuguese um, were the, the most prominent uh, slave buyers. traders. Yes. Now, who were selling, who were selling the slaves? Who were the ones that were selling them? 
it would be those slaving vessels, mostly Portuguese, French, and British, um, would transport enslaved people, uh, say, you know, to the Caribbean, and then they, they would be sort of, they would be sold there. Uh, some of them would be transported up to the North American colonies and sold there, whatever, however that, you know. Okay. Now, first off, we got to take a step back, and I just want to point one thing out. Africa is um, probably the most diverse place on Earth, okay? It is an incredibly diverse continent. There are more than 3,000 ethnic groups in on the continent of Africa. There are more than 2,100 languages spoken on the continent. So just to put that in perspective, Europe uh, is home to something like, I don't know, 87, I think, ethnic groups. Yeah. So more than 3,000 in Africa, about 87 in Europe. It is incredibly diverse. We in the West, especially the, the white West, have a tendency to throw the word African around as if it means something. It means something that is so big as to be almost meaningless, right? Yes, somebody from the continent, but there are 3,000 ethnicities that you're dealing with who are, like every other ethnic group, might not like the ethnic group that lives next door. Sure. Kind of, bit, kind of like the first African-American billionaires, Elon Musk, right? And that's, that doesn't quite describe most African-Americans, although he is the first, I think, African-American billionaire, right? The reason that people, the reason that people take, uh, would take umbrage, I guess, to say the least, at that uh, classification is that he is South African, sure. Uh, and so it is a technical truth, but he is from a settler colonial family who is, is from a lineage of people who invaded and then, you know, sort of stole land. And so that, you know, so his heritage sort of comes from, you know, ill-gotten gains. Well, I'm just saying he's, 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 he's African. Well, he's from Africa. No, right. he's not really, I mean. It, he's, but it, and he's it, American. Fine. He's, so he's African-American. It is not correct within the usage of the language. Mm. It's said as a, it's meant to be real-time shitpost. It's not meant to be taken seriously. And you know that. I mean, it's meant to be, it's a trolly thing to say. Especially considering that the term African-American does not generally mean people who were born in Africa. It means people who, they're African-American because, because the slave trade destroyed their cultural identity, stripped away their cultural knowledge and their ethnic uh, uh, their their ethnic identities and and did so deliberately so people don't know what ethnic groups they actually come from so they can't claim a specific lineage or heritage and so the best they can do is well i know i'm african so i can claim heritage from this whole continent so the term african american even comes from this idea that like slavery and the slave trade was so genocidal as to completely successfully strip away people's ethnic identities to the point where they have to claim a whole continent whereas most of you wouldn't find most white people calling themselves european americans they call themselves maybe well, no, Irish you see, or i'm italian like, american or i'm greek american or i'm a I'm irish american be, because you have because you have you have some benefit of being able to know your ethnic your ethnic background so in the case of elon musk he might call himself a south african he might call himself um i don't is he an american citizen i'm not I don't sure know. he is i mean he grew I up know. he he grew up in South Africa and then Canada and then and then New York. So like Lucky I'm not Canadians. really sure. Um, I mean he's been in those three places. So um, you know, I'm not I'm not sure. I think he's got just as much claim to being a Canadian. No, he would never claim Canadian. He's American. He's American through and through, baby. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, and it's not and it's not not the same because of his skin color. It's not the same because the reason the term no, the reason the term it's not the same. I get it. I get it. It's not the same. So 
Real quick, though, I just want to say really quick that um, the term African-American is not a term that was like recently invented. Of course not. It has been around 1782. Well, of course. Uh, and, but I, I don't think that's the same. In the same context. It's the way that people were using it then to try and talk about people who were uh, of African descent, but living in America, but they couldn't distinguish. But they, but at that time, they probably were first generation. Maybe. Listen, here's the thing. Yes. Because my grandfather was Greek. Greek American. Like that's what they called every first generation. If you go back and you read like runaway slave ads in the 17th century, even in the early 18th century, you'll see um, the ads will say things like runaway, um, uh, Ebo, uh, Ebo slave, you know, boy Ebo slave, about however tall he you know, has his country marks, or a Yoruba slave, you know, has his has his country marks. Teeth. I don't know what language you're even speaking right now. <laughs> <laughs> so they would they would actually advertise runaway slaves based on primitive and, and reductionist ethnic uh, understanding that that whites had. But like they would often say things like, oh, this this slave was uh, Igbo. And you can tell he's an Igbo because Igbo, all the Igbo. What the hell is that? Igbo is a is an ethnic group. Okay. And so the Igbo would like people would have um, their specific marks on, that they would make on their body. Like um, uh, you, you remember seal, you. like seal. Sure, sure, sure. So, sure. you know, you would you would have like scarification would be uh, a sort of a rich ritually done in order to mark you as a member of a certain ethnic group or whatever. Uh, they also. Yep. Branding. Branding, branding sometimes and some groups would uh, would file their teeth um things like that so people did these different things to mark mark themselves you know um polynesian cultures the, the tattoos did that like they did this you know i mean this is this is a normal thing like i mean lots of cultures do this thing they they do something to mark up their body to distinguish them as sure um it's the same as like wearing a cross the point of all that is just to say when you start to see more enslaved people born in the americas then imported from outside the Americas. Like when that shift happens where natural reproduction overtakes importation, you start to see the word African-American popping up. Of course. Now, listen, let me let me get a reference point here. What years are, are, again, are we talking about when we we're talking to? Well, we haven't of the gotten story? that far yet because I've only managed two pages so far. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Why don't you start reading? <laughs> but it's the end of the 18th century so it's you know 1760 1760s yeah okay so now that i have uh, now that i have 30 minutes worth of material that i have to delete no um, you don't <laughs> uh, okay so anyway back to what i was saying africa is an incredibly diverse continent with more than 3,000 ethnic groups and over 2,100 languages spoken on the continent which brings me to my other question <laughs> which i don't mean to interrupt again but since you bring it up, <laughs> since you bring it up, you know, you're uh, you're an English guy. You're a businessman. You're buying human beings. Yes. Yes. You bring them back. There's a language barrier. Yeah. How did they deal with that? OK, so I'm not going to answer that. Are we getting to that in the story? Are we going to get to that in the story? OK, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. OK. Yeah, we, we can talk about it when it comes to more into the story and then we'll talk about it there. I am. Um, trust me, I'll bring it up. Noted. Noted. <laughs> Africa. The great Africa. The motherland. The great Africa. Is it? It is the motherland. It's an incredibly Eden, diverse. It's located there. Okay. That's. It's now it's fairy tales, but um, it's an incredibly diverse continent with more than 3,000 ethnic groups and over 2,100 languages spoken on the continent. Of course, as the place where humans first evolved, 
uh, Africa's human diversity should not be very surprising to us because that's where like all people originated from Eden. and evolved into different groups of humans. Yeah. Adam and Eve. Uh, that's right. But Adam and Eve. Adam, I mean, unless Adam and Eve were like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Australopithecus that's, Africanus that's or something. I, I don't really know how you. They were in Eden. Were they, were they Homo erectus or were they Homo sapien <laughs> or were they uh, Australopithecus Africanus or, uh, I mean, what, what, which, which, which species of human or humanoid were Adam and Eve is what I would like. To do I look like an archaeologist? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's this is the problem to me. I'm like, what you know, what do you make of, of Devonians and like Neanderthals who are fundamentally different species of, of human being? Um, you know, they're, they're different species of, of, of hominid that is that is, you know, uh, but hey, listen, not homo sapiens. I'm not like saying Adam and Eve were the best looking people around i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> they're from africa okay anyway so one of the one of the ethnic groups in africa was called or is called the ethic that's e-f-i-k ethic and they're going to be at the center of our story so at least by the early to mid 16th century so talking about the 1500s, the Ethic had settled an area of Old Calabar near the Cross River Estuary along one of West Africa's best harbors um, and up into the Calabar River area on the higher ground above the mangrove swamps. That's where they settled. If you actually look at the Cross River on a map, um, it's just a little bit um, east of the of, of the Niger River where it dumps out. But the Cross River dumps out. It's humongous, super, so wide as it dumps into uh, the bite of, I think it dumps into the bite of uh, Biafra there. So it dumps into the ocean, you know, at the bite of Biafra, but it's really wide. So you could bring, I mean, it's it's like a, it's this huge natural harbor, you know, you could bring pretty significant sailing ships up, up the river. Uh, if you go up a little bit, there's an island there called Parrot Island. And so that's where actually a lot of the, the, sh the slave ships and stuff would dock in order to deal with traders a little bit further up the river. So anyway, it's a really good natural harbor. Um, the primary ethnic towns were about 30 miles from the coast. And the first of these towns uh, that was settled was called Creek Town. But soon after Creek Town was settled, it was followed by a town called Old Town. And then after Old Town, you're never going to guess what was settled next. New Town. New Town. Or for the purpose of our story, we're going to call it Duke Town, um, just Duke because Town. we're going to refer to it a lot. There you go. Okay. In the 16th century, the ethic that lived there seemed to have lived primarily as fishermen, and they established uh, extensive trade networks that went deep into the interior of West Africa. Then they, they traded fish, salt, other coastal products, you know, cowrie shells and things like that, yep. for agricultural products like yams and palm oil, and then eventually for American crops like maize and manioc. Uh -huh. Interestingly, the word ethic comes from an, an ibibio root verb, thick, which means to oppress. The ethic also called themselves iboku, which is a combination of two ibo words, which are put together to mean those who quarrel with the ibo. The two names that they have, ethic, is a, a word that basically comes from the word meaning to oppress. And then they call themselves Iboku, which is a combination of words, like another language, you know, like Ibo words. Mm -hmm. That means the people that quarrel with the Ibo. So their own words for themselves basically sort of set them out as kind of assholes. <laughs> right. Ethic was obviously a derogatory name that was given to them by some of the Ibibio speakers, but the Ethic like claimed it as their own. You know, they're like, oh, I, I like the way that sounds. That's right. Uh, anyway, so I think this tells us a little bit about their early relationships with their neighbors, but... 
When the first Europeans arrived uh, in the area in the 17th century, the ethic had uh, become well-established as traders, and they carried on really robust trade relations with Igbo and with other interior groups. So whatever those early conflicts, obviously they got over it. One English trader who visited Old Calabar in the, uh, the late 17th century, so late 1600s, described the area as, quote, well furnished with villages, uh, with villages and hamlets all about where Europeans drive their trade with the blacks who are good, civilized people, end quote. Now, slavery had been well established among the ethic long before the European slave trade, while other groups living among the mangroves had very little use for large numbers of slaves. The ethic actually controlled vast fertile lands that could be farmed by enslaved laborers. Furthermore, the ethic had access to their extensive trade market. So they were able to access slave markets deep into the interior. Um, that uh, he, This guy continued, quote, slaves are either those who, having no means of subsistence, sell themselves to rich men for life, or are those taken in war, or are children sold by their parents because they cannot keep them, or finally, those who are sold as slaves because they can't pay fines to which they've been condemned. Uh -huh. But of all of these, the largest number of those are uh, the largest number are those taken in war or seized in their homes and carried off. End quote. Uh -huh. Additionally, many people would enter sla into slavery to escape famine or to improve their circumstances, believe it or not. In West African, in, in like ethic society, a well-placed slave could actually prosper more than a poor free man could. Yeah. The system of slavery wasn't based on uh, ethnic or racial differences, but they were, it was you know, basically based on material conditions and conflict. Enslaved people referred to their ethic owners as father or mother. So there was a familial kind of expectation, a familial bond that took place here, right? Right. Slaves could not purchase their freedom in this system. In fact, it was actually considered really disgraceful to the slave themselves if a master freed them. It would actually uh, sort of, it would seem as if they had failed somehow because then they would need to go find a new master to protect them. It's an economic thing where I could see if I was in Africa, Western Africa at the time, they don't have anything. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame considering that it's like the wealthiest continent. I know. Well, well yeah. But uh, all of its wealth is stolen because it's all stri stripped out by the West. Yes, and internal. Well, no, by the West. It's it's, it's just it's it's, it's eaten eaten. by the West. Yeah, it's been eaten by the West for years. So so you would you would think that this is almost like your ticket out. Yeah, sure. For some people, for some people, it sure some it would them. be. Yeah, and then others, others, it's like you're just torn away. It's just such a a combination of just well, just a weird weird thing, you know. Which is which is what I've always wanted to learn, like the the how this is all done. How, where do they find, where do you find a slave? Where would you, you know, what is that business? Cause it was a business, right? At the end of the day, it was a business. Yes. I mean, there, there's a, a business aspect, but like the documentaries you see is like, you know, they bring one guy up and then if he's like a big, strong guy, then there's big guys out there and they'll bid on him and they'll say, yep, you know, we want him and we want him and they'll take him and it goes to the highest bidder, that type of thing. That's, that's like the environment that you imagine. When you think of the slave trade, well, you're you're thinking of how Europe does slavery. 
That is much more like how it's done in the Americas by European colonizers, for sure. Slaves do not call their their plantation owner, master, whatever, father and mother. Yes, yes. There is no obli- no no familial obligation in that way. We're, we're talking about a, like a, you know different societies, different cultures, right? With different family structures, even right. Like we're gonna, we're going to get into this. Yeah. So essentially. So essentially, if you're a slave and you got shipped off, your circumstances could be greatly different depending on if it was a French, an English, or a Portuguese ship you were on. Is that sure? But I mean, I'm talking about slavery as it existed in West Africa right now. So, like, yes, slavery existed beforehand, and and it existed in a specific kind of so in a, a specific cultural and social way. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're talking about right now. Yeah, when you get shipped off to the Americas, it's a whole different ballgame. Um, because again, the, the way that, that European colonizers practice slavery is fundamentally different than what the enslaved Africans arriving in the Americas might have expected. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I said slaves could not purchase their freedom in the system, and it was considered disgraceful if a slave to the slave if a master freed them, because then they would have to go yes. like find a new master. Gotcha. Who would then wonder why their former master didn't like keep them, right? Slaves in Old Calabar could improve their position by acquiring slaves of their own who could then be deployed to do the hard labor that they were expected to do. Sublet it. You can sublet uh, your, if an enslaved concubine bore her master's children, both she and the children became free. Oh, cool. Like, that happened a lot. That happened a lot. And not just free but then became part of the household. Please understand that as I'm talking about slavery in this rather cavalier way, I, I want to be crystal clear. It's all, I, I mean, I want a, a complete, sure. absolute condemnation of sure. all forms of slavery, but there are degrees, I think. That, oh, that of course. Understood. Of course. De- degrees of human degradation and suffering that, that are built in. So there were definitely variations of it, but in the grand scheme of things, anytime someone, you know, holds you against your will, it's, it's it's a terrible, horrible thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. Old Calabar. Old Calabar. Was a major slaving port. Yes, Old Calabar was a major slaving port in the 18th century. From 1725 to 1750, approximately 17,000 people were transported out of the region. But from 1750 to 1775, so the next 25 years, this number jumped from 17,000 to 62,000, right? So the late 18th century, you can see, like, this, it's really, the trade has exploded. So you're saying from 17K to 65K people were... Yeah, so from 1725 to 1750, 17,000 people were transported out okay. of this, just this one area. And then from 1750 to 1775, that went from 17,000, it went to 62,000. So, you know, over two 25-year intervals, you could see, like, the... The slave trade, like what quadruples or big so. business, just you know, from, big business. Yeah, it, expl- it explodes. And all told, about 1.2 million people were abducted from the the Niger and Cross rivers in the 18th century. Roughly 85 percent of the people taken in this area were transported on English ships. This is a predominantly English trading port. Okay. Now, how so many trading? 85 percent come out of it. Now we're talking about Western Africa here. Is that is that really where the hub was for? No, we're talking about Old Calabar. We're only talking about this one. Old area. Calabar is in West Africa. Correct, but there are a bunch of of barracoons and and factories and ports along West Af- the West African coast that that are other slave trading okay. areas. This one was dominated by the English. Correct. Okay. Correct. This one is is very much an English. Gotcha. 
Okay. And it's a booming one. And it's, yeah, it's bo- certainly by the, the second half of the 18th century, it's booming. That's for sure. So now the African traders that adapted to uh, the new and growing demands for slaves by European slavers, they were able to pr- profit handsomely and use the firearms and other European goods that they received to expand their power and their connections in the regions, right? Right. Not only did the expansion of the European slave trade affect the power dynamics of the groups in the region, it also reconfigured the familial structures, the family structures, among the most prominent of the ethnic traders as well. So before the, the slave trade expansion that really took place in that second half of the 18th century, the oldest member of an elite family was called the Ete Ufak, that meant father of the house. So whoever the eldest member of, of mm-hmm. like this large family was, you know, the elder was the sort of the father, right? And so the elders of the family all were kind of the heads of the same house, right? Okay. When the trade expanded, leadership uh, passed instead from the eldest passed to the wealthiest members of the family. This is a new thing. The whole family structure changed. So instead of being the Ete Ufak, they become the Etubam, which means the father of the canoe. We're going to get to the canoe and why that matters, canoe houses and why that matters, or you know what that means. Yeah. The shift reflects a transition away from a kind of lineage-based familial structure as ethnic communities became really dependent on the slave trade. Because as, as more and more Europeans demand more and more slaves- They needed more inventory. They have to do more and more raiding. They need more and more guns. They need more and more European guns to help them do that. Of course. They need more and more European goods to help them make trade deals in order to acquire slaves from other groups and all of this stuff. And But then the whole community becomes sort of dependent on the slave trade. Yep. And of course, this changes the family structure. This changes the whole social structure of things. As with any economic shift, where you become dependent on, you know, primarily on one good, you know, everything changes as a result of, we see it all around the world, even today. Kind of like, you know who, the Colombians, they started to rely on the cocaine trade. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens now that they, uh, that they've done an amazing thing and elected a really seemingly, seems like a really good leader. Wait, did you say yes? I said the Colombians. Yeah. I don't know who they elected, but, um, I'm open to see if if he's not corrupt. Uh, that's what you're saying. He is the the first. The Colombians have elected their first leftist leader ever. Yeah, I'm not. I, I'm not so anti-left in other countries as I am in this. <laughs> well, <laughs> they they've been the conservative bulwark of Latin America because that's where we um where we trained most of our death squads. It's where the, that we then exported to the rest of Latin America. Yeah, Colombia is where we pumped all of our money. In order to, they've essentially created like a kind of military for hire for uh, other, for like throughout Latin America. Oh, sure. On the CIA dime. And um, so anyway, so we'll see. A lot of corruption. A lot yeah, of corruption. I mean, that's conservative politics, baby. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's all. That's all. I know. It's all politics. What am I saying? As they became dependent on the slave trade, ethic houses rapidly transformed from relatively like egalitarian spaces with whatever wealth and power was that, that they had concentrated among the elders who then directed the shared use of all resources. They became places of, uh, with relatively few free men, uh, rapidly expanding number of enslaved inhabitants and with wealth concentrated in hands of just a few who 
were, you know, the ones who were talented enough to exploit the trade most effectively. Slavery grew so quickly uh, that enslaved people were not fully integrated into the social structure as they had been when it was the elders that were in charge, right? It's becoming a bubble. Yeah, in some ways, yeah. Um, nonetheless, household slaves were generally treated well. In fact, all things considered, um, English slavers reported that household slaves among the ethic were treated, quote, with the greatest kindness that I've ever seen. And they do not care to part with such for any price. So, you know, so they really, you know, so there is a, there is, again, this sort of familial type obligation. There was um, probably a lot of those situations that you just described. Also, what's that called? Um, where you start to fall in love with your captors. Oh, Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome going on. Yeah, I mean, after may, a long there, time, there, there may be. There's a big difference when you come from a culture where slavery just another way that you can, in fact, be a part of this society uh, as part of the family unit. You know what I mean? That it's a thing that you mm-hmm. probably don't, but but many people will enter into somewhat voluntarily. I mean, voluntarily meaning they're too poor, they have no choice, or something like that. But like. But that, and to see it as an opportunity to improve your condition. Right. You know, I mean, I guess I, I don't know that, it, I mean, maybe there would be that sort of Stockholm syndrome, but it seems like it's a different kind of, that seems more likely for the the prisoners of war. Yeah. But the prisoners of war are the ones who are most often the ones that are sort of sold away. You know, I mean, like that, those are the most, most commonly sold out because again, they represent a threat. Like, you know, these, you capture members of a military. Um, they're not necessarily the ones you want to keep around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You know, the trained militia is the group that you want to. Sure, you're going to take them across the ocean. Perfect. Um, one's wealth in this canoe house system was uh, reflected, obviously, in the number of canoes yeah. that a person had, that the Etobam had. Kind of like the cows. Isn't that the cow s- system as well at some point? Yeah, maybe something like that uh, in other places. Sure. But in this, I want you to understand okay. the canoes that we're talking about, right? The canoes would be manned by enslaved rowers. That were, of course, under the authority of whatever Etobam. These canoes were upwards of 80 feet long. Wow. And they would have as many as 15 like enslaved rowers on each side. These are like Viking crews, crews here. And they would transport around 120 men for battle uh, or 30 to 50 if they were doing like raiding, you know, uh, for, for slaves or something like that. So they would have room for, say, 45 to 60 captives in per, you know, per canoe. Powerful Etobams might have a fleet of these canoes. Um, you know, eight, nine, ten, whatever that they would use not only for warfare and slave trading, uh, slave raiding, but also they would use them to trade European goods deep into the interior, which of course expanded their reach and their prestige as they were able to bring you know uh, exotic goods well up into the interior of of. Uh, West Africa. These powerful leaders uh, often uh, adopted the trappings of English royalty because they wanted to sort of be seen on equal footing as they themselves were elites, right? So uh, you would see that in in like among these etabams, they would relieve themselves in English pewter piss pots. They would wash up using large English brass basins. They would look at their reflections in huge six foot by six foot English looking glasses as they dressed in brightly colored, custom-ordered English clothing. The Etobams of Old Calabar were, were powerful enough that they prevented Europeans from ever creating any permanent onshore bases or factories. And in fact, Europeans were actually prevented from taking any permanent residence in the region. European traders would sail to Parrot Island. They'd fire a single cannon to announce their arrival. 
they had to pay what was called a comey, which was like a kind of trading tax to the king of the town. So they would, upon arrival, uh, the the town Etubam would send a representative of some sort, or maybe himself would come out and would tell the 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 vessel how much the the comey was, which is this you know this tax. So they'd have to pay the tax, and if once they paid the tax, then they could start trade negotiations. Mm-hmm. Ships would remain docked typically somewhere between one month to as long as um, sometimes uh, as long as a year okay. as their human cargo and foodstuffs for the journey were traded and loaded on. And in addition to selling uh, enslaved human beings, the Ekif trader, traders, I'm sorry, the Ethic traders also sold provisions for the long journey, right? Right. Uh, English captains um, or slave captains estimated that they would need between 50,000 and 100,000 yams for a cargo of 500 people. You know, it takes time to load 100,000 yams onto a ship. The slavers would arrive, they would unload their trade goods, uh, and then ship carpenters would immediately begin converting the ships from cargo carrying uh, capacity to uh, human carrying capacity. So the ships would be converted, as the slaver John Newton said, quote, for the slaves to lie in two rows, one above the other on each side of the ship, close to each other, like books upon a shelf, end quote. So they would start like building, they would building in, uh, building a, a, a deck. Right like a mid-deck between the decks, and then they would build in uh, the hammock system for, for slaves to lay or the bracket system they would use. Yes. They would have to build all this stuff in real time. like they, So like they'd unload the cargo and then immediately start building out, separating off like where the women's quarters is going to be and things like that. So many captains deliberately divided people so that um, group, people with the same ethnicity or language would not be near each other. And when possible, they would actually put rival tribes or warring people, uh, they would kind of chain them together in an effort to forge distrust among the captive. And the, the captains believed this would reduce the odds of, of mutiny, right? If you put people who already hate each other, it would make it harder for them to work together. The Etzabobs and their subordinate rulers and their families, uh, they had to be fluent in multiple languages, getting to your question from earlier. Oh, I like it. They spoke their native Ibibio dialect, uh-huh. but also uh, these Etobam leaders within the families, they would also speak either English or in what was kind of a trade language. Now, a trade language uh, was not like a pigeon language. It was a, like its own. It was like its own language. It was a language that consisted of uh, English words, like an English vocabulary, uh-huh. but then they would use African grammatical structure. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I can't really even approximate what that would sound like. Sure. If that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Um, what about the slaves themselves? Though? We'll get to that. For one thing, you often, like for a slave ship captain, you don't necessarily want them to be able to communicate with each other uh, as much as possible. But sure. Um, a lot, you know, oftentimes, cap. Um, so you might bring on, you know, African crewmen who could then communicate yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, with people. Yeah translator you have a translator you know that's that's probably the most common but there are also ways to try and there are also ways to sort of communicate non-verbally for sure so yeah but i mean but often you would have people on that sort of operated as a kind of translator mm-hmm. most elite family members were fluent in both written and spoken versions of english or the english sort of trade language so they could they could still write english but oftentimes they would write it uh with a, a broken structure but it was very clearly English that they were writing, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Many of the great leaders in of the Afik actually sent their sons or their brothers or their nephews to England to receive formal education. There are uh, just a bunch of surviving letters between Afik traders and English traders that reveal the closeness of the relationships they built on mutual trust and friendship. 
because of the trade and because of this, these sort of foreign exchanges. In a lot of ways, the relationship between the Etobams and the English slavers should be better understood in class terms rather than in terms of race or ethnicity, right? The elites carried on in mutual friendship. They carried on in beneficial trade at the great expense of the common folk of the land, okay? I mean, that's, you know, what's, what's going on. One final point about the ethic, um, political and economic power was also tied to a secret society called the ECP. That is uh, the word means leopard. ECP helped sort of forge a bond between different canoe houses that might otherwise find themselves in conflict. But because of this sort of uh, secret society connection, it tended to keep most conflicts at bay, as we're going to find out. Not always. Sure. All right. By the 1760s in Old Calabar, uh, a fierce rivalry had developed between three of the most powerful Etobams over their position of primacy in the slave trade. The three towns were Old Town, Creek Town, and Duke Town, or New Town, as mm-hmm. we said. Right. By 16, I'm sorry, by 1767, Old Town and its leader, Grandy King George Robin John, were unquestionably the most powerful of the three. Duke Ephraim ruled Duke Town, and Creektown had exper- experienced an improvement in their long declining fortunes when Ao Insa, who was called Willie Honesty by the Europeans, when he took command, not as a hereditary elite, in fact, he may have even been a former slave, it's hard to, we, we're not sure. But anyway, he was a talented and ruthless common man. In 1767, Duke Ephraim and Ao Insa formed an alliance and enlisted the in, uh, the assistance of some of the English captain, captains who were all too happy to break the Robin John's fierce control over the region. Mainly, they were happy to help because they complained that he was charging too high a Comey rate and that he was able to command prices, uh, too high prices for slaves. Because again, he was so powerful, he was able to, you know, he was able to control the, the market and the tax rate. Let me ask you a quick question. Comey rate. Did we end up getting commission from that? That is an interesting question. Let me, um, I'm going to actually look that up real quick. No, it, it's from Latin. Uh, commission is Latin, commentary, commissio to a gotcha. trust. All right. So in June 1767, Grandy King George, his brothers, Ambo Robin John and Little Ephraim Robin John and his nephew, Ancona Robin Robin John, led a grand delegation to visit seven English slave ships that were anchored in the Calabar River. A fleet of nine or ten great canoes, up to 80 feet long and carrying upwards of 120 men, set off to greet, party, and trade with them. Grandy King George rode in the royal canoe. He was dressed in a multicolored, knee-length robe, a red coat trimmed with gold lace, a silk sash around his shoulders, a gold cane in one hand, and a gold-trimmed hat under his arm. Finally, he had a fine sword at his side. His place was under a grand umbrella at the bow of the vessel with beautifully colored ensigns emblazoned with his name, written in English, fluttering in the wind, and a large cannon nearby. In front of the cannon, a man shook a bundle of reeds to symbolically symbolically ward off obstacles and dangers. In the center of the canoe, there was a small house painted bright yellow and red with men on top of the roof beating drums. A uh, very impressive retinue of men lined either side of the vessel next to a row of 15 canoe boys, which who were paddling on each side. And the Royal canoe was followed by eight or nine others that were all outfitted in basically the same fashion, 
if perhaps slightly less grand, right? With his brothers uh, and other lesser gentry at the bows of each one. This is how I'd make an entrance right here. I like this guy. Pretty impressive entrance. Yes. In total, about 400 men traveled the roughly three miles to the English vessels that were at anchor. Now, ordinarily, these men would have been armed with cutlasses, muskets, pistols, but because of the trust relationship that had been built over time, the ethic, quote, in the common course of trade and visits, they are never suffered to bring their arms into the ships, end quote. So the express purpose of this visit in June of 1767 was for the English captains to mediate this dispute between Old Town, Creek Town, and Duke Town. Indeed, to this end, Grandy King George actually brought one of his favorite women mm-hmm. to present to Duke Ephraim as a wife. Oh, that's nice of him. <laughs> different times, my friend, different times. Uh, I, um, I yearn for those days. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> the, uh, it's, I'm going to cut that part out. Please don't. I'm going to cut you cut out you saying I yearn for that. That's just awful. No, it's good. It's good. I do. I do. It's a great time. Yeah, it's a great yeah, time yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it in. I'll leave it in. Um, but I'll put the part where I'm, I say I'm going to cut it. I'll leave it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Leave that. That's good. Um, okay. The Old Town Entourage was, was uh, plied with drinks and with feasting uh, all throughout the afternoon and evening, right? Mm-hmm. Grandy King George, his son, uh, Otto Ephraim. Mm-hmm. Ephraim is a very popular name, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his his son, Otto Ephraim, and his younger brothers, Ambo and Little Ephraim. <gasps> little F. Little F. And his nephew, Ancona Robin, Robin John. Annie Rob. I call him Annie Rob. Spent the night aboard <laughs> uh, the Indian Queen, <laughs> is the name of the vessel. And in the morning, Ambo... Little Ephraim and Ancona Robin Robin John were tasked with delivering messages to the captains of the other ships. So, so they're, you know, they basically, the captain gives them messages because they, you know, they can't really communicate. It's not like they can call each other on their cell phones. So they give them letters. They go down on a canoe. They get paddled over to one ship. They deliver the letters. And then that captain gives them letters to take to the next ship and so on. Right. Mm-hmm. By the time they arrived aboard a ship called the Duke of York, Captain Bivens of the Duke of York had the Robin Johns trapped in the cabin and then ordered armed men to open fire on the canoes alongside the ship. Bivens and his first mate entered the cabin with pistols drawn, but before they could fire a shot, Ambo rushed the men. He knocked them both down, but more men armed with cutlasses arrived and secured the Robin Johns. And Coda recalled that the sailors were cutting him on ye head and he cried out, Oh, Captain Bevan, what fashion is this for white men to kill black men for? End quote. Sorry, I love this quote because it's like, we're here to trade slaves. And the, the, the fact that he's like, the audacity that you would kill a black man is somehow still part of his like rationale. You know what I mean? Like, how dare you like harm right, a black right, man? Right. This makes no sense. Which is why I think like, I, I want to just come back to this idea that you cannot let class slip too far from your mind as you hear the story because like you know what i mean like right this is like a common experience like being cut up and beat up and and battered this is what happens to slaves this is typical and yeah but like mm-hmm. for this slave this african slave trader he's just like wait what are you doing why are you harming me this is madness why would you hurt <laughs> why would you hurt a black man this makes no sense it makes no none whatsoever anyway little ephraim and ancona were locked in irons when the shooting started, three other English ships also opened fire on the canoes uh, and war canoes filled with Duke Town and Creek Town warriors who had been hiding in ambush 
appeared all of a sudden uh, and joined the massacre. Their canoes sinking, the Old Town men tried to swim to shore, but were fired upon from all sides. The river literally ran red with blood. Ao Nisa was on a canoe with Duke Town men, and he pulled alongside the Duke of York and requested uh, the delivery of Ambo Robinjohn. Ao Nisa told them, quote, by God, Captain, if you give me that man to cut head, I'll give you the best man in my canoe, end quote. Ambo begged for a drink of water, but was denied and then lowered onto the canoe. As soon as he was, was sort of brought down, Ao, Ao Nisa grabbed Ambo by his hair and beheaded him with one blow. Oh. And then held his head aloft as shouts of victory arose from the allied canoes. Mm. Little Ephraim and Ancona watched all of this with horror, as you might imagine. <laughs> Aonisa wanted these Robin Johns as well, but Bivens, Captain Bivens, refused until his ship was fully slaved. So he said, you know, if you once you fill my ship with slaves, then I'll give you these two. Mm-hmm. Though in the end, he wouldn't honor that promise. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty grim. I told you we we're getting to the action now. <laughs> I mean, you know, dude, yeah. I love that he that the again these little like these little bits of the trade language are fun. He's like, you know, give me that man so I can cut his head. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like a, it's just such a fun way to say like I'm going to yes. decapitate him. I want to cut his head. Anyway, all right, yeah, it's great stuff. There's your swashbuckling. Yes, we got some swashbuckling. <laughs> Grandy King George was aboard the ship Edgar, captained by Ambrose Lace, when the shooting began. Armed English sailors tried to capture him uh, when they heard the shots, but Grandy King George bravely fought back, killed two of his attackers, and jumped overboard. He climbed into a canoe and tried to escape there, but a well-placed shot from an English six-pound cannon shattered the vessel. He then uh, suffered 11 musket wounds uh, trying to swim ashore. And despite that, he did manage to survive and get back to Old Town, where an English surgeon who was uninvolved with the massacre saved his life. Once uh, Captain Bivens' ship was filled with the human cargo he had come for, he refused to turn over Little Ephraim and Ancona to Aonisa. And instead, he kept them in irons below deck with the other captured survivors and captive slaves. Mm-hmm. And they were all going to be sold in the Americas. Okay. The Robin John's enslavement set off a flurry of letters from the Robin John family to various English uh, slave traders in the hopes of freeing and returning them home, but to no avail. Ambrose Lace took Grandy King George's son Otto uh, to London and had him educated there for two years before he sent him back. Mm-hmm. Lace wrote, quote, he cost me above 60 pounds. And when his father's gone, I hope he will be a good man. Mm-hmm. So you see here, like he took his, he took Grandy King George's son to London to educate him, mm-hmm. and he treated him well, and he did nice things because he was hoping that he could then trade with him as a slave trader and get a better deal than what his father was doing. You, you see what right, I'm saying? Like, right. So yeah, I mean, this is not like he, this is like he's playing the long game. Right. Sure. Okay. All right. In case that wasn't clear. Yeah. All right. Um, years later, in 1790. Lace, having spent 40 years involved in the slave trade as first a crewman, then a captain, then a ship owner. Oh, he was called to testify. Yeah. Called to testify before Parliament for his involvement in the massacre of 1767. See, the events uh, of that day clearly violated English law that stipulated, quote, no commander of any ship trading to Africa 
shall by fraud, by force, or violence, or by any indirect practice whatsoever, take on board or carry away from the coast of Africa any Negro or native of said country, end mm. quote. So Lace's recollection of events from that day, though, seem to be among the least reliable of all that we have, because he basically just testified uh, to saying whatever he could to save his own bacon, because he knew he violated right. the law and, like, was, yeah, so... He's like, well, no, I don't remember any of those things. That, <laughs> I don't recall. That all of these other people testified. Yeah, all these other people testified about. That's weird. I mean, we'll get back to him a little later. Regardless of the law, because it doesn't really matter much, um, Ancona Robin and little Ephraim Robin John were confined aboard the Duke of York with roughly 334 other captives. Of those 336 human beings sweating and suffering on two decks with less than five square feet of space apiece, only 272 of them survived the 45-day journey across the Middle Passage. Most enslaved Africans arrived on ships uh, in a state of utter disorientation. Typically, they'd been marched long distances. They frequently had never seen the sea before, uh, or Europeans for that matter. Oh, they were shitting their pants. Imagine the seasickness going on. And you've only got five square feet of space. I mean, think about how little, what, what a small amount of space that is. Oh. And oftentimes you might be chained to one other person. If you have to go to the bathroom or anything else, you need their cooperation. I bet you a lot of people died on that trip going back. Didn't you hear what I just said? Go ahead. 336 people set sail. Only 272 arrived. Yeah. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of fucking people. That's a, is that how many boats is that? That was one ship. That was just one ship. That's one ship. Yeah, sixty-four people. Sixty-four out of three hundred thirty-six died on that ship. That's not twenty percent. It's not terrible. I mean, one out of every five people. That's what I would think. Yeah, I would. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking. I mean, that's pretty bad. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, for the for the time. I mean, just think about in your. Hold on, just to put it in perspective. Think about your family, and now kill one out of every five of them. That's a lot of people, Mike. From that perspective, it's a lot of people. From their perspective, as a business owner, I'm thinking that's a pretty good loss percentage. I, I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not pissed about that. You know, I'd rather it be ten percent instead of twenty percent. But I mean, again, this is a pretty horrifying conversation to have when you're talking about human beings. Sure, sure. I would imagine uh, now. In contrast, let's look at Columbus and the and the three ships he brought over. What do you think percentage of his shipmates lasted on that voyage? Uh, that's a good question. Because I would think it back, back in those days, it had to be a, a miserable, miserable way to travel. Yeah. Much further for Columbus. No. I would imagine it was much further for Columbus. Not really. Than no, potentially really. the other no, ones, I really. think. But, um, Maybe. but here's the thing. There's a big difference between Columbus's crew who were paid and... They were, well, I don't know, man. I've seen some stories, and I don't know what's true and not true, but it didn't look like they were actually in very good, comfortable settings, even Columbus's crew. Well, it's not comfortable. No, mm. not comfortable. They, were, they weren't chained to each other. They weren't, like, chained to a guy, but, but they were still in, in the same type of quarters, I would think. Uh, no, but they were also weren't stuck on, below. No, they weren't trapped below deck with five square feet of space. And they also knew what they were involved, what they were getting involved in. It's a 45 day journey. You know, these people, most of them, you know, had never even seen a European and many of them thought that they'd been bought by Europeans to be eaten. Oh, so they were 
So they're terrified. Holy crap. Um, you know, many of them would refuse to eat or drink aboard the ships. They were, uh, and a lot of them would look out for ways to like try and take their own lives. Oh my God. So anyway, so, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was this, they're not, yeah. Being a, um, being a sailor in the age of sail is not great. Not good. Wasn't a cruise. It was not a cruise. Was not a cruise. That was why the British were constantly having to impress people into the Navy. Um, you know what impressment was? Um, capture. Yeah, well, impressment, like, this is one of the things that uh, that the, the young United States complained about. Like, the British would come into ports and, and they'd trade and whatever. And then they'd, like, go into the taverns and they'd, you know, maybe find a couple of drunk guys and drag them aboard ship. <laughs> and then they'd set the- sail and the guy would wake <laughs> up on ship. And, like, you're in the Navy now, buddy. <laughs> or we'll, or you can walk the plank. Yeah, yeah, or, you know, you can swim back. Good luck. <laughs> you know, we last saw the coast two hours ago. You've been pressed into service, you know. Anyway. Where do I sign? Right. (laughs) Hey, it's Brian here. Thanks for listening. I'm going to cut the episode here and we'll pick up in part two. Uh, We ran a little bit long with all of our conversations, so uh, I want to try and keep these all at around an hour. Uh, In the meantime, you can email at unbalancedviews at gmail.com and soon you'll be able to find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks for listening.